0: Lord, we love you, Uh, we're grateful for the chance to study and to be together, and we pray for your blessing on our time together tonight. Uh, Give us wisdom, help us to uh, see the central, big, important truths in this chapter from the book of Revelation, and Lord, on the other issues that are not uh, abundantly clear, uh, we do ask for wisdom and we pray that you would help us to think through these issues and uh, be willing to examine our beliefs and our, our assumptions in light of what the Bible says and in light of what it doesn't say. Uh, so be honored in our study tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation 20, um, throughout this study, We've talked about Revelation being built on seven sevens. Um, that, that sounds nice, right? Revelation seven, good number, seven sevens. That seems fitting, and I've kind of laid it out for you so far. Tonight is one of the passages where that theory and that understanding of seven sevens and the structure of that, it actually has a pretty big impact on the way that you make sense Of Revelation chapter 20. And I'm going to try to explain that and and we'll make sense of it tonight. So here's your sevens. The, The second one in italics, the yellow one, that's the centering vision, the foundational vision for the whole book. And maybe you think that that should have come first before the first seven, but it comes second. And that's the way John experienced it. First, he writes the letters, real churches, real people, real problems, real history, everything in the book has to have some meaning in immediate uh, application to the people living in those churches. John did not write this book to you and to me. He wrote it to the people in these churches. So then you've got this vision. Then you've got these remaining six sevens. And we've kind of informally divided them into two groups of three. The blue ones, we've basically said those sevens describe the interadvental period. So you think about advent, the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, well, there's going to be a second advent, a second coming of Jesus. So in between his birth and his second coming, that's the interadvental period. It's all of the church age of church history. And those blue ones, I think, clearly describe that entire period of church history. and they're not one, two, three in chronological order. They're one all the way through that period, then we reset the camera, and we go all the way through it again from a different perspective, and then we do it a third time all the way through. If you were here when we talked about the bowls, you remember that one of the distinguishing features about the bowls is that John tells us, with these, the wrath of God is finished. And so there seems to be in these last sevens a movement with more focus on the end And we've knocked out the bowls, and we've knocked out the seven visions of victory. And now we're going to talk tonight about seven visions of the end. And that's going to be this week and our last week. So tonight we're going to do chapter 20. And then next, I said next week, but next month we're going to do 21 and 22 together. And that's this final section of seven visions of the end. And we'll tag on the, the epilogue next week. So just to encourage you. Here's a few quotes uh, for what's in front of us. Grant Osborne says this is easily the best-known portion of the book as well as one of the most divisive passages in the Bible, not just in Revelation, but in all the Bible. And Craig Keener says there's little doubt that Revelation 20 is the most debated chapter in the book. So we've talked about a lot of debated things, and we've gone through different symbols and images and visions, and I've said to you at times, some people think this, Some people think this, I lean this way, you have to make a decision. But without question, this is the most debated chapter. And the interesting thing on these two quotes is Osborne and Keener don't agree about how to interpret Revelation. They come at it entirely different. What they do agree on is nobody agrees about this particular chapter. It's super, super uh, contentious and debated. So let's start off talking about the millennium. Revelation 20 is equated with the millennium, so we'll just define a few basic terms at the outset. Uh, The word millennium, it's not Greek, it's not Hebrew, it's a Latin term. And it means thousand year. So the Latin word mille is thousand, and the Latin word annus is year. You think about an annual, um, so we're talking about a thousand year (laughs) period. Revelation 20 is the only passage in the Bible that explicitly talks about the millennium, okay? Everyone, we're going to talk about all these different millennial views. All these different views would point to other verses and say that verse is about the millennium, that verse is about the millennium, that verse supports my view of the millennium, this is the only passage that explicitly talks about a 1,000-year period. That's what a millennium is, 1,000 years. Other passages you might be able to tie in, and I think there's some you can tie in. This is the only one that explicitly talks about it. And so being the only passage, it is very, very debated. Uh, a couple of scholars that I read over the last month or so said, the millennium is a 1,000 years of peace that Christians love to argue about. And that's pretty fitting for what you're dealing with when it comes to the millennium. So I gave you, some of you have been waiting for this night, the whole time we've been in Revelation. You have been waiting for a timeline of some kind. Give us a timeline, give us a chart. And tonight I've gone over and above and I've given you four. Um, And they're all different and they all represent different ideas. And I just want to walk through them one at a time with you. And try to make sense of these various ideas. Four main approaches to the millennium. And whichever one you want to fall on, it really is helpful for you to understand the others. And the others are formed by and in turn form other areas of theology. You can't just separate this out real neatly without having impact on other doctrines. And other doctrines have impact on how you make sense of this. So here we go. Position one. Historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism. This view says that you move along, starting with creation, up through this age, and ultimately we're looking for the age to come. And you'll notice on this layout there's an overlap in the ages. The age to come overlaps with this age. So we come right along here to the Perusia. That's a theological term for the return of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. So this view says we're going to go all the way through this age, and at some point Jesus is going to come back, and when Jesus comes back there is going to be a first resurrection. This first resurrection is going to be of believers only. And then we're going to have something called the millennium. And notice that we're still here in the millennium in this age, but it is now overlapping with the age to come. The age to come is inaugurated when Christ returns, and this is, a, in some views, a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus on the earth, and in most views, it's a long reign of Jesus on the earth. And we're going to come to this question of the number 1,000 in a minute. Uh, at the end of the millennium, there's a second resurrection. And then you notice there's no more overlap at that point. Then we just move into the age to come. Now, there's more we could add to this. I've greatly simplified it just for the, the purpose of comparison. But that's historic premillennialism. This is the view of the earliest church fathers. If you go back in history and you try to get as close back to the book of Acts as you possibly can, to men that we have writings from and they talked about the second coming of Jesus and they talked about the book of Revelation, the people closest to Jesus, this is what they tended to believe, almost all of them. Does that mean it's right? Not necessarily. But it's a pretty important piece of the puzzle in going back and saying this was the first view of how things were going to go. I mentioned George Eldon Ladd just because he's had a huge, huge impact in pushing people back towards historic premillennialism and away from dispensational premillennialism. And then I have mentioned Schreiner with an asterisk, and I'm going to explain the asterisk here in just a little bit. Okay, So let me tell you the strengths of this view, just broadly speaking. And I think these are in your notes. This view is consistent within Revelation chapter 20. It's consistent. And I'm going to show you a view in a minute that is not consistent within Revelation 20. I'm just telling you now, this view is consistent as you work through Revelation chapter 20. This is the view of most of the early church fathers. Weaknesses, and this weakness, I hesitate to call this a weakness. It's more of an awkward feature that you have to just be comfortable with or you're not. In this period, on the earth, historic Premillennialism says, on the earth, there will be people living, believers who have been raised and have new resurrection bodies. And they will be living among non-believers who do not have resurrection bodies. And they will be on the earth at the same time. Because this second resurrection in historic premillennialism is the resurrection of non believers. You have believers first when Christ returns, and then you have non believers at the end of Revelation 20. And that means in this period you have believers and unbelievers living together on the earth, which is kind of an odd thing to think about. It doesn't mean the view's not right, it's just an interesting thing that you've got to wrestle with. Um, okay, let's talk about dispensational premillennialism. This is the big view in our neck of the woods. This is the Tim LaHaye stuff, the Jerry Jenkins stuff. This is very close to historic premillennialism except for we've added one thing. We've added the rapture of the church out from this world. Straight up, notice they go straight to the age to come. They're out of this earth. They miss the seven-year period that dispensationalists call the Great Tribulation. And what a a dispensational premillennialist will tell you is that this period is specifically for the Jews. It really doesn't have anything to do with you if you're not Jewish. God has paused His program with Israel, they believe. And at some point, He's going to unpause it. But before He unpauses it, He has to get all you Gentiles out of the way. And so He's going to get you out of here And he's going to take you to heaven. Lucky for you, you don't have to be here for any of the tribulation stuff. That sounds great. And then the Jews will be here and other people who are converted will live through the tribulation. And the millennium is centered on the Jewish people. Uh, Strengths of this view. I'll try to be fair to each view and give you a strength and a weakness, even on the ones I don't think are very strong. Okay. A strength. This view is serious about going back to the Old Testament And looking at the promises that God made to Abraham and David, many of which involve land, and saying God keeps his promise. He's going to literally keep those promises to the family, the offspring of Abraham and David. And they say those promises are going to be kept here on the earth during the millennium when Jesus is literally sitting on the throne of David in the Holy Land ruling over this jewish remnant that has been saved. So that's something they're taking the old testament seriously. It's good to take the old testament seriously. Weaknesses I don't see any biblical reason to within the book of revelation or in the new testament to divide the people of god from old covenant to new covenant. All of the terms used of old covenant in Israel end up being used of the church in the new testament. They're the people of God. They just live before Christ's coming or after his coming. And the whole mindset of the dispensationalists is we've got to chop it up into dispensations. And we're in the church age now. We've got to get them out of the way so that we can go back and resume what was going on in a previous dispensation. Uh, the other big weakness, in my opinion, is that these dispensationalists say, you need a millennium for God to keep his promises to Abraham and David. You need the earth here and all of that business. But what other views would say is God can keep all of those promises to Abraham and David literally in the new heavens and the new earth in the age to come. It doesn't have to be during the millennium. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And you're not going to be floating on clouds forever. You're going to live on a new restored earth, and God can keep those promises then um, the biggest weakness is that you guys know, I've told you my views on this, and I put my cards on the table. I don't see any biblical justification for this at all. And I cannot get out of first and Second Thessalonians in any way, shape or form, believing that there's going to be a rapture of the church out before a period of great tribulation. Uh, this is the view of John Nelson Darby and Cyrus Schofield and Lewis Berry Schaefer. And it's super, super influential in the Bible Belt, especially in the South. So that's his, uh, historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Okay? View number three, amillennialism. This is the simplest one to understand. Okay? I like simple in some ways. There's a current age, and Jesus is going to come back, and there's going to be a resurrection, and then we're going to be in the age to come. That's it. Just, here we go, we're living in this millennial period now, and we'll talk about how they get to that understanding that right now we're living in the millennial period. Jesus is going to come back, the parousia, resurrection of the dead, believers and unbelievers, one time, and then the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth, the rest of the book of Revelation. Uh, Strengths of this view. It is consistent with what we've said ...about Revelation being seven sevens. Okay, go back on your notes and look at those seven sevens. The last seven ends in chapter 19... ...and the new seven begins in chapter 20. And historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism... ...tend to read chapter 19 as if it's right in line with chapter 20 sequentially. Here's one thing, then the next, then the next, then the next but we've not been doing that throughout reading Revelation up to this point. We've been saying, no, he's given you a view, stop, change the camera angle, then he's going to talk about the same thing. And we took a break at the end of 19, and we have picked up here at 20. So if you view it as seven sevens, he's paused, and now he's resetting the camera angle and he's showing you uh, the same truths from a different perspective. So there is some consistency with what we've said so far. Uh, biggest weakness, and this is really big this is really, really big, is it is inconsistent within Revelation chapter 20. So I told you historic premillennialism, consistent in Revelation 20, with how we interpret a key phrase. Amillennialism is not consistent, and we're going to work through that here in a little while. One last view, postmillennialism. This is the idea that uh, the gospel is going to spread, uh, in some ways, it's very similar to amillennialism, but we're in this age, and the, the difference is at some point we're going to slide into the millennium. Okay, amillennialism says it's now. We're in it right now. Postmillennialism says, no, we're in this age, and we're going to slide in to the millennium, and Jesus is going to come post at the end of the millennium. Post-millennial. Jesus comes at the end of the millennium. Jesus comes back, there's a resurrection, and then there's an age to come. Uh, strength of this view is that post-millennial authors rightly argue that the gospel is going to spread to the ends of the earth. It's going to continue to spread. We, we are not pessimist when it comes to the gospel. We believe it's going to spread to every tribe, nation, language, And tongue, people are going to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord, and they tend to emphasize that in their uh, interpretation of the millennium. Weaknesses, they don't seem to have much of a category for what the New Testament says about things getting worse and things deteriorating and spirituality deteriorating as you get closer to the return of Jesus. And the New Testament seems to talk about both of those things. Yes, the gospel is going to spread, but Paul also tells Timothy it's going to go from bad to worse. And you've got to have some view to explain that. And it's really tricky when you slide into this golden age of the millennium right before Jesus comes back. So, which one do I like? I'm going to pick two. Okay? Two. I'm going to tell you that if I was a betting man, I'd put most of my chips on historic premillennialism. But I'm also pretty convinced by millennialism, And I think both of those are good views. So what I'm telling you and putting these two up on the screen is when it comes to dispensational premillennialism, I can't buy it at all. And when it comes to postmillennialism, I'm not convinced in any way, shape, or form about what those guys argue. But I think these are both convincing views. And I'll just give you one person who's influenced me. When I was at Southern Seminary, I took... Uh, Greek and New Testament from a guy named Thomas Schreiner. And we talked about this in Schreiner's class. And Schreiner said uh, at the time that I had him at Southern Seminary, he said his preferred view was historic premillennialism. And he was slightly convinced by the arguments for amillennialism. So his view then is what I'm saying where I'm at now. However, he's since written a commentary or a section on a commentary on the book of Revelation. And in this commentary, he says, I've changed my mind. I actually think amillennialism is more convincing. But I still think historic premillennialism is a viable option. So he's basically hedging both ways. He has a preference, and his preferences change. But he thinks that one of those two... Uh, is the best approach. So let me just lay out for you the key questions that are going to govern the whole way you make sense of this, and we'll go through these quickly. Number one, how do you connect or divide Revelation 19 or 20? That's really, really important in how you sort this out. Do you say Revelation 19 lays out a sequence of events that flows right into chapter 20 and the sequence just continues? That's historic premillennialism. Or do you say, no, there's a break, seven sevens. We got to the the seventh of the six sevens. Now we're on the the last first of the seven sevens, and there's a break here. You've got to answer that question. Um, If you want a camera reset, so to speak, that leans towards amillennialism. If you think there's continuity, it probably leans more towards historic premillennialism. So you've got to sort that out. Question number two, how do you interpret the number 1,000? This is not the most important question, to be honest with you, but it is a question that you've got to wrestle with. I've told you throughout this study in Revelation, we don't take numbers literally, we take them seriously. We've done that with the number 666. We've done it with the number 144,000. We've done it with the number 10. uh, The beast had 10 diadems on his head. Uh, We've done it with all sorts of numbers. We don't take them literally, we do take it seriously. This number is 10 cubed, and so there's probably some sort of symbolic view to that, and you have to decide if you want to be literal with it or not. Uh, Thirdly, how do you interpret the phrase, came to life, in Revelation 20 verse 4? And we'll get to verse 4 here in just a minute. You have to decide if that phrase means... Physical resurrection came to life. Or if it means spiritual life, regeneration. Or if it means your life when you die and you go to heaven and you're glorified. What does it mean that they came to life? And we're going to walk through that. Uh, Question number four. How do you interpret the phrase the rest of the dead and the first resurrection in Revelation 20 verse 5? These phrases in verse 5, on the surface of it, seem to suggest that there's two resurrections. And so you can go back and look at these views I gave you. Two of these account for two resurrections. Two of them don't. So if you only think there's one resurrection, you have to come up with some way to make sense of the rest of the dead and the first resurrection. What does that mean if there's only one? Why would you call it the first if there's only one, you would just say it's the resurrection. And you have to make sense of that. Those are the driving questions uh, that you've got to wrestle with as you go through this text. Alright? So let's get to the text. Revelation 20. We're going to take this in chunks. Small chunks. We'll start with verse 1, 2, and 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay. Here's what I want to do in each section. I want to point out to you points of agreement between historic premillennialism and amillennialism, things we all agree on. At least in those two views. And then I'm going to acknowledge the points of disagreement and we'll just walk through this. So, points of agreement: Satan, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, is the deceiver of the nations. He's the deceiver of the nations. He is bound in a pit for a thousand years, whatever you think that means, so that he can't deceive the nations. And that fits with what you know about the serpent in the book of Genesis. He deceives Adam and Eve. That fits with what you read about Satan in the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. He is the deceiver. Uh, He fools people. He tricks people. So that fits with what we've read in the book of Revelation as well in chapter 12 and 13 especially. So everyone agrees on that. Secondly, Satan is consistently defeated in the book of Revelation, and he's defeated by God and by angels. And I think this is really important. Just from conversations I have with people about the Bible and theology and the book of Revelation, I want to point out that the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb ultimately will defeat Satan. But if you actually read the book of Revelation, angels do a fair bit of defeating Satan. And I'm just reminding you that Jesus and Satan are not equals. It doesn't take Jesus to defeat Satan. If you read the book of Revelation. In fact, if you read back in chapter 12, Satan and his angels fought against Michael and his angels. And Michael and his angels won. They won that conflict. And right here, we read about an angel coming down from heaven. And he seizes the dragon and he throws him into a pit. It didn't take the lamb to do that. It was an angel who did that. And most commentators agree when that verse says angel, it's really talking about an angel. That's not code word for Jesus did it. It's actually an angel did it. And so I'm just pointing out to you, as Christians, we believe in good and evil, but we don't believe that those are completely equal forces. And it doesn't take the one on the throne and the lamb to defeat Satan In these conflicts, angels are doing that. And, of course, you would say, well, the angels are doing God's bidding. They're empowered by God. Yes, I understand that. Satan is not Jesus' equal. That's just worth establishing. Okay, so that's agreement. Let's talk about disagreement on these three verses. First point of disagreement is when is this happening? When is this happening? So, historic premillennialism says... It's happening immediately after the return of Jesus, this binding of Satan. So if you're just constantly looking back at this chart and your your various views, historic premillennialism, the one right up at the top, says this binding of Satan happens when Jesus returns. It happens on the front end of the millennium that's to follow, okay? Amillennialism says, no, this is a whole new section and it's really just another description of the interadvental period. What the amillennialists actually say, and I think I have this in the notes later, is this happened at the cross. Satan was bound at the cross. And historic premillennialism is saying, no, this happens when Jesus returns. And it really depends on how you want to read this moving from Revelation 19 to Revelation chapter 20. That's a pretty key issue in how you sort this out. Here's another point of disagreement. What is the deal with the chain and the binding and the sealing? Okay, There is some agreement. Nobody thinks this is a literal chain. There's no literal chain that is holding Satan somewhere now or later. Nobody thinks that's what the book of Revelation is describing. Historic premillennialism says this binding is the total elimination of Satan's deceptive influence during the millennium. He's gonna be bound in this pit during the millennial era and he will have absolutely zero, no influence on what happens on the earth during that time. All millennialism says no, it took place at the cross when Jesus won the decisive victory over Satan. And an all millennialist would say, look, why was he bound? Because he was deceiving the nations. In the Old Testament, how many nations were there following the one true God? Well, at best, there was one, and other people could come join it, and they didn't even do a great job of it. In the New Covenant, we have people from every tribe, every nation, every language, all over the earth following Jesus. They're not being deceived anymore. The gospel is spread, and that's proof of that. And the amillennialist says, yes, because that took place at the cross. So an amillennialist, when they say Satan is bound, they don't mean he has no influence. They just mean it's, he's on a leash, and God's not letting him do all the deception he used to do. Historic premillennialism says, no, this business about a pit and a chain and a thousand years and sealed up and none of this nonsense, that's total and complete, and it's not going to happen until... Jesus comes back, and it's all the way through the millennial period. Um, so chain, binding, sealing. You've got to sort that out. Third question, how long is a 1,000 years? Historic premillennialism gives you two choices. You can say it's a literal 1,000 years, or you can say most people seem to think it, it's a long full time, whatever you think that is. It doesn't have to be literal. Very few numbers in Revelation are literal. All millennialism, nobody really thinks it's literal because they say it's the church age. It's this interadvental period right now. We're living in it. Satan is bound in that he's limited in how he can deceive the nations, and we're living through this period of the quote unquote millennium now. So that's verse one to three. Clear as mud. Okay? Let's go four to six. Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. Remember we talked about that phrase. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. All right, Points of agreement. Things we agree on. Number one, those seated on the thrones here are believers. I got a big old stack of books on Revelation. There's a few oddballs that think that... These are angels, almost everybody agrees. these are believers. these are human beings, followers of Jesus who are seated on these thrones. And there's other verses uh, in Matthew 19 and Luke 22, 1 Corinthians 6 that talk about believers ruling and reigning, and they give support to this idea. So I don't think that's too debated. Uh, secondly, the idea that believers will reign as priests and kings is firmly rooted in the Old Testament. so I'm just pointing this out to you because Revelation pulls almost everything from the Old Testament. It really doesn't have a lot of new stuff. It just takes the Old Testament and brings it into uh, the New Covenant. And so this is an Old Testament idea. You can find it in lots of places. Thirdly, there's a blessing associated with this thousand-year reign. So we've talked about the seven blessings in Revelation. This is one of them. And it's a blessing... For those who share in the first resurrection. So that makes me tend to think that we're talking about believers here, all believers. We're not just limiting this to martyrs. We're not just limiting this to people who literally had their head chopped off. We're not just limiting this to people who literally looked at a satanic tattoo artist and said, No, I won't get 666 on my forehead. But you're saying these are believers, people who are faithful to the gospel and they are the ones who are going to receive this blessing. Now, disagreement. This is a big one. What does it mean that they came to life in verse 4 and verse 5? This is a big plus for historic premillennialism. In fact, it might be the biggest plus in the whole argument in my book. Historic premillennialism says that both of these phrases refer to physical resurrection. That seems to be the plain meaning of it. The word is ezasin. That's what it means everywhere else in the book of Revelation. It's talking about physical resurrection. That's what it means in the New Testament. And it's used in verse 4 and verse 5. And people who hold to this view say, I think John's talking about the same thing in verse 4 that he's talking about in verse 5. There's no reason to read those differently. There's a first resurrection at the beginning of the millennium, believers. And a second At the end, for unbelievers, blessed are those who participate in the first, not so much for the second, as we'll see in just a minute. Amillennialism says that these mean different things. Uh, They think that verse 4, the first reference, is a reference to regeneration or new birth, or maybe it's a reference to glorification, what happens when a believer dies and goes to heaven. So historic pre-mill says, no, when you're raised to life, you're physically alive, new body, resurrection body, and you're going to rule and reign with Jesus on the earth during the millennium. An millennium uh, perspective says, no, this coming to life is regeneration. And you're a believer now, and if you're a believer now, you're living in the millennium and you're reigning with Christ spiritually. Or when you die and you go to heaven, you're glorified you're reigning with Jesus in heaven, but it's not actually on the earth during a, a true millennial period. So there's disagreement, major disagreement, obviously, on that view. One more point of disagreement, when is it happening? Historic premillennialism says the first resurrection's at the beginning of the millennium, and the second resurrection occurs at the end. So there's two physical resurrections. That's pretty obvious when you look at the, the timelines I gave you. All millennialism says the first is your salvation or your death when you go to heaven. And the second occurs when Jesus returns. The physical one is when Jesus returns. So there's agreement and there's disagreement on this section.